Open your hearts. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. I had to go and get my phone because the clock isn't on back there, and I would preach until like one o'clock, if, and it would be your fault because the clock's not on. So, <laughs> all right. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that you anoint this this morning. Transform all of our hearts into your likeness. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to act like you. We want to think like you. We want to lay our lives down for you. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of our admiration and you are worthy of our intellect. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So I'm not going to teach... This is going to be thoroughly a teaching, okay? So just buckle up, put on your thinking caps. But I'm not going to teach uh, eschatology. I want to say that on the front end. Uh, eschatology just means end times. But I'm going to, because we're going to teach on the topic of the resurrection of the dead, we're going to be bumping into it here and there a little bit. And I want you to know, I know, and I'm well aware of our church and the people in it, that there's like five or six different eschatological views in this room that are different. And I honor, I want you to know, I honor each one of those views. And I'm not going to do the, the passive-aggressive, I have the microphone, you don't, na-na-na, boo-boo, kind of like, you deal with it, I just said the truth and you don't have the truth. So I think the way that we have to carry eschatology, I called it holding our theology friendly. And the way we have to do this is... We, we can have our view. I'm okay. I have a view, and I'm, I'm comfortable with it. But I don't ever look at the other views as though they're the enemy to my view. Does that make sense? They're like, they are more like a refining fire that actually tests my view, right? So <clears throat> I say all that. I honor all the views. I look at the views, and, and if you were to open up a book, an es any book on eschatology, whatever the view might be, it would read beautifully from beginning to end. The scholars have put in the work. None of them are stupid. They're all really, really smart, okay? And so they would read beautifully from beginning to end until you set them next to each other. And then when you start set, setting them next to each other, you have to question, oh, what do I believe? Do I believe this? Do I believe that? And so my goal isn't to lock everybody in this room into you must believe this, but I am going to probably touch somebody's nerve, and I want you to know I am not here to touch your nerve or bully you into my belief system, Okay? Now, I'll say, to say all that, I'll say this. The two demonic views of the end times, let me take a drink so you guys can think about that for a second, <laughs> is the view that scoffs, the view that scoffs, the view that's willing to look at any of the other views and minimize and, and call it stupid, okay? That's a demonic view. Peter tells us, he says, in the last days, scoffers will come. If your view allows for scoffing, there's a demonic influence in your view. It doesn't matter what your system is. The second is the view that says it doesn't matter. And that's the big one. That's like telling Jesus, staring him straight in the eyes and saying, I don't care about what you have to say about the future. Okay? It's his leadership. It's his plan. And so we humbly submit ourselves to it. And we use each other to be refined. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. All right, so let's open up to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13 through 14, and then 6, 1 through 3. They all flow right into one another. And it says, Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. 
But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So, for the author of Hebrews, these, these ideas were not peripheral. He's not dismissing them and getting rid of them and saying, all right, let's be done with this and move on. He's saying, foundationally, these are things that you guys already understand. Notice the list and notice who it's written to. The, risk, the list is thoroughly Jewish, and it's written to a Hebrew or a Jewish audience. Okay? So these guys have a thorough understanding of these topics. Now, we're going to hone in on the resurrection of the dead and a little bit on eternal judgment. <clears throat> now, if you look at most of the other uh, uh, Bible or, or books in the New Testament, they're written to Gentiles, especially the books from Paul, right? So they fundamentally don't understand these ideas. These are the ideas that they're being discipled into. But the Hebrews, they get these ideas. These ideas are common to them, okay? So bef- before we move fo- forward, it's really important to set up context. And context can sometimes be boring. I almost wanted to leave this part out, but it seemed important enough to put it in. And so when you want to understand the New Testament, typically you got to go back to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel lays out so much for us fundamentally that if you understand some of the basic theological ideas and prophetic oracles that are given in the book of Daniel, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make much more sense and when you see the conflicts that arise between uh, all the cultures and the subcultures. So I'm going to give you a bunch of dates. I don't expect that you're going to remember the dates. What's really important is is that we're talking about the time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. From the the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, about a 400-year period where a lot of things happen historically in the Middle East and in, in, in Israel, and the book of Daniel prophesies these things, okay? So in 538 B.C., Daniel uh, has a dream, or it's written in the book of Daniel. He has a dream uh, about four nations that are going to rise up. And those four nations are Babylon, which is the one that's already in power, Medo-Persia, and here's the big one I want you to hone in on, Greece, and then Rome. And we all know that Rome is the one in power when Jesus is on the earth, right? Okay, now at the end of the book of Malachi, so this is when Greece is already starting to come into power. So we had Babylon in the book of Daniel. Now think of Daniel closer to the end of the, of the Old Testament, all right? It's common to think that Daniel's somewhere in the beginning. It's, it's really not. It's closer to the end. And so at the end of the book of Malachi, the Greek philosophers are going to rise up out of Greece. Now this is really important because it's going to create... Um, a conflict of philosophical and religious ideas in the Middle East for the next 400 years. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, a lot of the ideas that he is pushing up against are Greek philosophical ideas. Am I making sense? We have to stick with that. You get, you gotta, that's the big important point. The, the Greek philosophical ideas are going to infiltrate uh, the Jewish religion and the, and the Christian religion. Okay. And I'm not saying any of that to demonize Greek culture. Culture itself is not evil in any way. Culture will be celebrated throughout all of eternity. And so I'm not pointing to the Greek culture and saying everything in the Greek culture is bad. But the philosophical ideas being uh, 
brought into uh, Christian doctrines and theology is problematic. Okay, so Socrates from 469 to 3, uh, 399. Then you got Plato at 347. When I say 347, that's 347 years before Christ, okay? And then you have Aristotle at 322, who influenced, or you could say, uh, Alexander the Great was uh, his pupil, okay? So Alexander the Great was under Aristotle's teachings. Now, what Alexander the Great, and it, it, you guys are all familiar with Alexander the Great, right? He's a uh, Greek king, okay? Uh, he wanted to take and conquer the, the Middle East. And when he did that, he wanted to take the ideas that he was taught from Aristotle and infiltrate that into all the cultures and make a unified kingdom, a one-world kingdom. That was, that was Alexander the Great's uh, goal. So he does. He conquers the Middle, the Middle East, conquers uh, Mesopotamia, uh, the Fertile Crescent. That's in the Old Testament. That's what everybody's fighting over is the Fertile Crescent, that fertile area that are right, right to the uh, right of Israel when you're looking at a map. Everybody's fighting over that spot. So when you see, you know, Babylon's in power, then when Babylon gets defeated by Medo, the Medes and the Persian, they're coming through and they're just taking all of that land over. Then Greece comes and does it. And then just before Jesus, Rome comes. Okay, but the big thing is the ideologies that are going to be uh, infiltrated here. So Alexander, the, he, he conquers the Middle East, or Mesopotamia, and after conquering Mesopotamia, he dies like suddenly at the age, of, I think he's 32 years old. Okay? Now, his kingdom is going to split into four kingdoms, into four different uh, Greek, uh, Greek king, essentially, it just gets split into four different ways. That's all that's really important. But this is called in, in, in history the Hellenistic period. Say Hellenistic. Has anybody ever heard the term Hellenistic? Okay. It just means that the Greek culture was influencing and syncretizing with all the other cultures, meaning they were merging ideas together. And this is the way the, Gre the Greeks and the Romans actually operated. They were very, they were much more sophisticated. They didn't, they weren't as barbaric. They didn't just come and annihilate you and then enslave you. They would come, defeat you, and then take your aristocrats and your rich people and use them as influencers still in the culture. But they would also um, use their, their philosophies and say, but you have to also uh, abandon your beliefs and, and take on our beliefs to some degree. All right, you guys tracking with me? All right. Now, what's going to happen in 306 BC, okay, 306 years before Jesus, there's going to be a Greek school that starts in Egypt called the School of Alexandria. And this school is going to teach Greek philosophy. And not just Greek philosophy, but uh, religion, architecture, engineering, uh, really advanced. Think really, for its time, it was really advanced. So even today in Western civilization, we are very influenced by, by this period, right? The Hellenistic period, even to this day, has modern implications. All right, so this school rises up, but what this school does is the Jews start flowing to it because Greek education becomes the desire. Everybody wants the Greek education because it's the most sophisticated, it's the most refined, it's the most beneficial to culture. And what the, what the school did is it introduced the allegorical method of, of Bible interpretation, okay? Meaning, uh, I don't want to make it sound silly, but it's like almost like there's a secret hidden meaning to the actual meaning of what's in your Bible, okay? Now, put a pin in that because we're going we're gonna to revisit that thought. 
So that's 306 BC. So this is all happening during that Hellenistic period where where, uh, the Greeks are really influencing the Middle East. And the Greeks are going to syncretize with Rome. When I say syncretize, it just means they merge thoughts. They, They adopt each other's ideas, right? If it's beneficial, we'll adopt it. Okay, and so, um, so Rome doesn't have, have a problem with, with the Greek ideas. They actually admire it. And so they defeat Greece, but they take their ideas, and, they, and then they really are promoting them. Okay, so let's see. One, in 167 BC, so we're now 167 years before Jesus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Has anybody ever heard of the name Antiochus Epiphanes? Or you could say Antiochus. Uh, scholars pronounce it both ways. Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus Epiphanes. You could call him the Old Testament Antichrist. That's how you can think of him. Okay? Now, he was a, uh, a, a Greek uh, king, and he came down. He didn't like that Israel was not syncretizing with Greek philosophy. And so he came down and brutally assaulted Israel um, raped women, killed children. Um, you can read it in the, in the book of Maccabees. If you guys have ever heard of the Maccabees. Okay, in, in, the, in Maccabees you can read all about it. And uh, he really tried to force the, the, the whole Greek system onto the Jews. And the Jew, some of the Jews wanted it. So the, the choice or the, the struggle was, is do we syncretize with the Greeks? If we do, how much? And so, you know, uh, they, they just thought differently ever, as far as Jews and, and Greeks. And depending on the subculture and, and who you were in the culture, you would, you would adopt more of the ideas or less of the ideas. And so this is what makes the Maccabees rise up because they don't want the Greek ideas. So the Maccabees, you all know, they were like this military force in Israel that did not, um, you wouldn't have thought that they would have been able to defeat Antiochus and get him out of Israel, Right because their, their military was small. Uh, it could be compared to like guerrilla-type warfare, where it was like, how are these guys possibly going to defeat um, the Greeks? But they do, and they get the, they get the Greeks out. And is, you know, to really summarize the story, that's where like Hanukkah comes from, right? But what ends up happening is uh, two people groups that you guys will be familiar with, right? So we're now getting to the New Testament. Two people groups are going to rise up out of this time called the, uh, the Hasmonean dynasty where the Maccabees are uh, in power or the, the Maccabees defeat the Greeks and then the Hasmonean dynasty comes and there's a kingdom in Israel actually until 37 BC. So 37 years before Jesus, now we have uh, a kingdom in Israel that, you know, and t- two people groups are going to rise up, the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they come out of this, this period uh, at 167, 160 B.C. <clears throat> but both of them have radically different ideas as, as to the way to move forward. Okay, so now, just to summarize, because I know that was a lot, and that part's boring to me, but it was important. Because context is always important. Why we believe what we believe always comes from somewhere, right? And so we, a lot of our thinking in the church, even today, comes out of this time and, and the, the philosophies and the ideas and the theological ideas that were being thrust through the nations at that time, okay? So the Sadducees wanted to syncretize. When I say the word syncretize, my wife is like, don't use that word. It just means to merge, merging ideas. The Sadducees wanted to merge ideas with the Greeks because the Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the ones in power, 
okay? And so when you're the one in power, you do what it takes to stay in power. You don't care to rock the boat, right? Yeah, we'll do, yeah, we like Greek philosophy. We like this, that, and the other. And so the Greeks really liked entertainment. They really liked, um, you know, debating and, and leisure or leisure. And that was just so foreign to the Jewish culture. So when the Greeks began to bring these things in, and it was more of like a different style of enjoying life, because mostly Jewish was work and worship, work and worship. That's how they thought, okay? So you got the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees come out of the priesthood. That's where they come from. But their thinking is syncretize with the Greeks, adopt the allegorical method of Bible translation. And then you have the Pharisees. Now, when you think Sadducee and Pharisee, don't think to yourself, the title is bad. Pharisee is not bad. Sadducee is not bad. Those are just titles. So the Pharisees don't have a Pharisee problem. They have a human problem. Okay? The Sadducees don't have a Sadducee problem. They have a human problem. All right? And it's that they're in conflict with God. Now, the Pharisees were a purist group. They did not like the idea of syncretizing with the Greeks at all. So you got one, you got one religious system with two radically different ideas that are happening um, all throughout now what you read in the Gospels, right? Because we read in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, there's neither angel nor spirit, but the, but the Pharisees affirm them all, all right? So now we're starting to see a division in thought. And this, the, the, the real point here is that the enemy has, wants to put so much power and uh, he really militates against the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Because the resurrection of the dead is foundational to, to all Christian beliefs. When we talk about deconstruction of our faith, when we don't have that component in there, Paul himself says that our whole, all of our theology crumbles. When you get rid of the resurrection of the dead, it's as though Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then everything that we believe is meaningless. And we should be pitied amongst, most pe amongst all people. So you can't m remove that component, component, the resurrection of the dead. And when I say the resurrection of the dead, we're all familiar with the resurrection of Jesus, right? That he raised from the dead. But you have to know, anytime the Bible's talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's unto the end of your resurrection from the dead right? If we disconnect those two ideas, we, we end up with a huge gap in, in the gospel. <clears throat> so there's Jewish expectation and there's Greek expectation. And unfortunately, a lot of the Greek expectation has infiltrated the church where it minimizes and mitigates these basic fundamental gospel ideas where we, we're no longer strengthened in our faith in a way that we should be because we don't know what to expect in the future. But the Bible is actually really clear about the future. If you think about even the first advent and the second advent of Jesus, right? We typically mostly talk about the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. There's 88 chapters in your Bible about the first coming of Jesus. It's glorious. I, I think we should promote it. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. There's 150 chapters about his second coming. The Bible says so much about his second coming that mostly ends up ignored and minimized. And it, and, it, and it takes the meaning out of our gospel message and it puts all of our hope on today. I hope today goes well. I hope my bank account is full today. I hope my job goes well. I hope to get a promotion. And our hope really ends up not being hope. We're just wishing upon a star that things go well. 
But biblical hope is being assured of the things that are to come. We are confident in what is going to happen. And Jesus wants us to be there. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't want us in theological confusion. Like, we don't have the book of Revelation to be confused. You know that, right? The book of Revelation is the answer, right? Jesus isn't saying, here's this, have fun. It's actually to give us clarity. It's meant to give us clarity. So when we avoid it, and, and it's weird, I don't know why we do this, but we avoid it in the name of wisdom. Like, like it's a smart thing to avoid. Like the Holy Spirit just got me not on that track right now. It's there for you to have clarity and confidence in the gospel. Now who has the authority to, the authority to interpret it? That's the question. And Steve's laughing. <laughs> I love Steve's laugh. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the Greek influence on, on our biblical outlook, okay? So I'm on slide number five. And see how similar it is that our thinking, especially in Western civilization, is more familiar, it's more like Greek thinking than it is biblical thinking. And if we can abandon some of the Greek ideas, it actually gives us way more faith and confidence uh, to walk in the way that we're meant to walk. That's the whole point. Because the resurrection of the dead is the common theme that the apostles preach. We're going to discover that here in just a minute. So Greek, when it comes to God, the Greek, God is spiritual and distant. He's not invested in humans or creation. Okay, so demigods become the acting agents. They actually believe that the God, the God over everything is unknowable. And so they create demigods that act as acting agents between the unknowable God and them. Biblical, the biblical view of God is creator is invested in physical creation. Division of spiritual and physical is pro- problematic because the Greeks always want to split the physical and the spiritual. Spiritual is the desire, physical is discarded. So we want to discard the physical, which is an unbiblical view. Jesus wants to reconcile both. But yet we don't, as believers and, and as Christians, we actually don't believe in the end of the world. We, we don't believe in the end of the world. We believe in the restoration of all things. It's a very different belief. But that end of the world idea, it, it, gets, it, it creeps in with those Greek philosophical ideas because we want to disregard the physical because the physical in the Greek mind is corrupt. But the biblical doesn't think of it that way. In the Greek, sacred and secular are separate. Biblical, sin alone, sin alone is secular and all else is sacred. In values, Greek, the dignity comes from uh, achievement of leisure Entertainment, theater, debates, and libraries. Biblical dignity comes from worship, work, and labor. Leisure is not highly valued. It was not highly valued by the Jewish people. That's that doesn't make leisure bad. It's just, think of it. As, as Westerners, we mostly think about Monday through Friday as a means to get to Saturday where I can check out. Right? We mostly think about working 48 weeks out of the year so that we can vacation for three, two to three weeks. Right? It's like everything is motivated to get to that moment where I don't have to think about my responsibilities. That's actually an unbiblical mindset. In in Greek, the soul and the body are separate. They're separate components. The soul lives on forever. The body is disregarded and it rots. 
In biblical, the soul and the body are two distinct parts of one living being. So the, the, the Jews never thought of the soul and the body as two, two separate pieces that will be separated. That would be, uh, that, would, that, that would be the opposite of the way that God thinks and the way that the Jewish people thought about the body and the soul. Uh, Greek, death is desirable to be freed from the detestable body, right? Because we know that this body is weak, we know that this body is frail, it gets sick, it's annoying sometimes, it's asking us to do things for the next endorphin hit, and we're like, okay, I'm going to look at my phone for three hours and scroll through Facebook with no purpose, all because our flesh is like, you need to check out, right? But under the, uh, under the biblical, the body is, or I'm sorry, yeah, death is detestable. Or de- death is desirable by the Greeks because the body is detestable. But to, to the Bible, death is not natural. It's an execution. It separates families. Death is an enemy of God. It's not a freedom. Death is not a freedom. So when you go, when you go in to the funeral, you say, he's in a better place now. He's in a better place, but he's not yet to the best place. And that's the reunite, reuniting of the soul and the body. That's the biblical mindset. You'll think differently about your life if you believe your body's going to be resurrected. You'll live differently. You'll spend your money differently. You'll have different friends. You'll treat your relationships different. You'll work your job different because everything now matters. Because the the physical, just to give you on the front end, the physical and the spiritual are not meant to be separated. They're broken right now because of sin, but they are going to be reconciled and brought together. That's the vision of God. So in eternity, Greek, you live, you live forever in the ether as a, a disembodied spirit. In the upper sky, they would call it or space or heaven or cease to exist. So even in, the, in, in Greek theology, you have some, you know, there's always somebody who thinks something a little bit different. But in Greek theology, you even would have your atheist where we just die and cease to exist. Um, but then the ones that believed in eternity would just say you would be a disembodied spirit, right? And so that's what you see in Hollywood. When you see uh, eternity being promoted, what do you see? Somebody dies, they go to the pearly gates, they walk in, and then they're just, that's where they are forever. And I got to say, that is so not interesting. It does not captivate your heart, right? That's why we don't think about it. So if you don't think about eternity rightly, you'll never think about it. But if you think about it rightly, it'll be on your mind all the time. And that's why the apostles... Uh, we're always preaching on it. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 23, resurrection of the dead, resurrection of the dead, resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> so just a summary, Greek, in the Greek worldview, uh, the spiritual world is utopia. In the biblical worldview, physical and spiritual combined is utopia. Okay? The great master plan is to reconcile what is broken and bring it together. I'm going to skip slide six. I think I'll skip seven and eight, too. I don't want to. I put a lot of effort into those two slides and all that information, but I can see the time is going away, so I'm not going to go there. So what ends up happening is you get these two... uh, Well, actually, let's go to slide seven. Uh, Slide, that's six. There we go. All right, so we talked about this school right here that rose up just, uh, when was it? 300 years before Jesus, okay? This is the school of Alexandria. It's a Greek school. Um, 
and what's going to happen after, the, after Jesus lives, dies, and is resurrected, this school is going to convert in uh, 190 AD from a Greek school to a Christian school. But they're going to keep some of the basic ideas that they've always had, which they infiltrate Neoplatonism and Greek philosophy into their allegorical hermeneutic of Bible translation. All right, I just used a bunch of big words. So to, to dumb this down, they basically allowed Greek culture to influence biblical interpretation. Does this make sense? Okay, now you have a second school here. I'm sorry, these colors are kind of bad. I thought they'd be brighter. You have a second school right here. This school uh, did a lim they rose up in opposition to this school, okay? This is called the School of Antioch. And they had a literal, in literal interpretation or a literal hermeneutic. Okay, now, first of all, I want to tell you this. I'm not saying bad, good, or bad, good. I'm because there's nuance to everything. Anytime you're looking at doctrine in church history, there's always like, that's right. Ah, wait, that's weird. And so the one thing can come out of one guy's mouth that's right, and the very next sentence is like garbage. And you're like, well, how do we? So um, my, my point isn't to pick one. It would be a Greek idea to actually pick one and debate from that, from that point of view. You understand? Okay, so the challenge for us is to find where things in your Bible are meant to be taken literally and where they're meant to be taken allegorically. And the question then becomes again, who has the authority to decide, right? I have the microphone, so it must be me. <laughs> no, I don't even want to present it that way because really when you get two opposing ideas, the real test isn't to pick one, defend it, and make it sound right. The idea is to pass the test of humility and meekness. That's what you really want. You want to go through the refiner's fire of the Sermon on the Mount. If you, the, you want to be as most, the most, how do I say this? You want to be as inclusive as possible in your theology. Does that make sense? Without abandoning your, your convictions. So there's going to be people in this room that have different convictions than I have. So do I abandon those relationships and cut them off? Does that sound like the gospel? Fundamentally, we have a problem if we're willing to abandon our relationships and cut off relationships because there's a, there's a minor tweak in the way we believe things. This is the problem with politics right now, right? Oh, you believe this? I can cut you out, which is fundamentally against the Sermon on the Mount and the way of the kingdom. It's like, and then we say that our way is the kingdom. Oh, it's so selfish and gross. So the idea here isn't to pick one, it's to walk in humility and meekness and, 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 and see why, why would those people believe that, why would those people believe that, and how can we best harmonize it together? Because we all see in part. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Well, let's stay here for a second. So you can see the triangle that I put here. This is like the intellectual triangle of the second century of ideas that are coming together with philosophy, theology, um, military, all the so you got Athens, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. Those red dots all represent the destination of one of your books in the Bible, in the New Testament. Okay? So you can see the, the sovereign plan of God, right? He Jesus and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, has ideas that he wants promoted in truth in a geographical region because this is the intellectual center where all the information is about to go out to the rest of the earth. Does that make sense? Now those little green dots, you can't really hardly see them, I'm sorry. These little green dots here 
they're all in this one little spot, right kind of overlapping some of the other ones, represent the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Okay? So those seven letters, we have to pick those back up. They are just as important as the epistles that Paul wrote. Okay? From the lips of Jesus himself, he wrote letters to the churches for us to read, find encouragement, and understand the mind and heart of God. And if we disregard them, we miss out on huge components of the gospel and how to walk forward together, right? So we don't want to over-symbolize. Here's the point. We don't want to over-symbolize and we don't want to over-literalize. Let's go to the next slide. Okay? Because what, what ends up happening is basic gospel ideas end up, uh, end up falling under the wrong type of scrutiny, I guess I want to say. So you got, down here's my little graph. These two arrows represent where we should probably be at, somewhere in here. I find myself some, sometimes over here. Then I find myself sometimes over here. I want to be closer to this area because it makes it a lot easier to relate to this guy over here than it would be if I was an extreme literalist. And nobody can be an extreme literalist. People claim to be. They, I read every single verse literally. Well, no, you don't. That's ridiculous. And I can give you like four or five Bible verses that would, would embarrass you if you're an extreme literalist. The same with uh, an extreme allegory. If everything becomes an extreme allegory, nobody has the authority to decipher what the Bible actually says, and it actually leads the body of Christ into confusion, Right? And so we don't want to be in either extreme, but we don't want to ditch either idea. We want to be closer to the middle. So these ideas end up uh, problematic when we put them in the extreme categories, right? Is the kingdom of God spiritual or physical? Many Christians cannot answer this question because they're picking a side instead of just reading their entire Bible and seeking to understand. Because the Bible promotes both a physical and a spiritual kingdom. Right, right now, the, spirit, the kingdom is spiritual. But then you got guys and girls that'll say, it's only spiritual. There is never a physical kingdom coming. Don't you know, you, you idiot, don't you know that Jesus reinterpreted the kingdom as primarily spiritual? Right? But then you got other people that go extreme literal. There's no kingdom now. You have the Holy Spirit, but there's no kingdom. The kingdom is yet coming. So stop thinking about the kingdom, you idiot. Right? And always you idiot or you silly or a <laughs> You think that <laughs> How could you even think that way, right? So unhelpful. It just doesn't help anybody. So we don't want to put ourselves into the extremes because then everything gets questioned and there's no real answers for anything. So you look at these three verses, Luke 17, 20 through 21. Uh, Steve preached on this two, two weeks ago. Says the kingdom, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. Or he says, it's in your midst, right? The kingdom of God is in our midst. Right now, when we come into agreement with the Holy Spirit, we act in obedience, the kingdom is expressed spiritually. Yes! We should love that, right? We all mostly are pretty much in agreement. That is true. But then Ephesians 1.14 says, the Holy Spirit is a down payment of something yet to come. So we only have something in part. Luke 17 is in part. Because then Revelation 11:15 says, the kingdoms of the earth are now the kingdoms of our God, and he will reign forever and ever. Both are true. Together. 
we got to reconcile the ideas instead of separating them. Picking a side and fighting like a Greek. Because that's what the Greeks do. You pick a side, you bring a new idea, and you debate it. And then whoever looks most like an idiot is the loser. All these, these other, this is, the, this is some of the deconstruction stuff that we were talking about before. Look at this one, the fourth one down. Was Jesus' death spiritual or was it physical? This is actually, this is actually coming up from the, the, the generation before me or after me. Don't you know? It's, it's not real. That's, one guy calls it cosmic child abuse. The father would never abuse his son that way. You take that component out, you don't have a gospel. That is actually heresy. I don't like to use the word heresy. That is heresy. Is Jesus' return spiritual or physical? Some would argue it's only spiritual. Some would argue it's only physical. Right? I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm trying to tell you to think through it. The Bible answers, the Bible offers these answers where we actually don't have to debate. We just have to love the full counsel of Scripture. Is divine judgment spiritual or physical? You got guys now saying, God's not going to judge people, he's going to judge sin. So he's going to somehow like take sin out of people that are sin, that have sin, and like judge the, smash the sin because he loves people so much and he does love people so much that he wants them separated from their sin. But do not get it confused. People are judged. You will be judged. You will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And unbelievers will stand at the white throne seat of uh, judgment. See, when we get when we are loose and we play fast and loose with these ideas, nothing really has meaning. How we live doesn't really matter. Just, you know, just do whatever the Holy Spirit says. But, the, but whatever the Holy Spirit says could be different from human to being to human being in a good way and a bad way, depending on how radical you want to be with how you interpret the Scriptures. Let's go to slide 9. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, Paul warns Timothy, he says, Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hemonias and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and is ruining the faith of some. So the resurrection was being allegorized, into, well, the resurrection is just that, you know, Jesus is on the throne of your heart and you have a spiritual resurrection. That was one of the early beliefs that the resurrection isn't, it's stupid to believe that a physical body would actually raise out of the ground. That's silly. You actually think that? You think your body is going to come out of the ground? And so that idea ends up scrutinized. Paul tells us to avoid that type of irreverent, empty speech. Let's go to uh, slide number 10. I just wanted to give you a visual on this. This isn't all of the verses, but these are all verses that pertain to the resurrection of the dead in your Bible, okay? I, I just, I got sick of looking for them. I was like, all right, I don't know, like 40's enough, <laughs> all right? But the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead are the foundation of everything that the early apostles taught. They never abandoned this idea. <clears throat> I want to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. You guys all know who Charles Spurgeon is? 
Reflecting the other day upon the sad state of the churches at the present moment, I was led to look back at the apostolic times and consider wherein their preaching of the present day differed from the preaching of the apostles. But the main difference I observed was in the subjects of their preaching. Surprised was I when I discovered that the very staple of the preaching of the apostles was the resurrection of the dead. I found myself to have been preaching the doctrine of grace of God, to have been upholding free election, to have been leading the people of God as well as I was enabled to into the deep things of his word. But I was surprised to find that I had not been copying the apostolic fashion of half as nearly as much as I ought to have done. The apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the consequent resurrection of the dead. Because it is what the blessed hope is. That's where you throw all of your hope. Don't put your hope in life going well today. Jesus warns you, life may not go well today. I love that when my life goes well. I'm, I'm not against my life going well. But there will be days when life does not go well. And if your blessed hope is that your life goes well today, when tomorrow comes and life crumbles down on you because finances aren't there, somebody gets sick, something happens that's unexpected, are you going to lose all of your hope? You put your hope in the wrong spot. You put your hope in the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. That is what the early apostles promoted. Because it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. That type of hope isn't something where like, I'm wishing that that happens. That's where we put our faith in. And how much more difficult is it to believe when you believe in the resurrection of your own body to believe and have faith in signs and wonders today? Right? Because the most important meeting and the most important miracle of your life are yet future. So you anchor yourself in that and live in faith according to that. And now it's not so hard to put your hand on somebody and ask for a blind eye to be opened, a deaf ear to be opened, for a sickness to be cast away. Right? Because we're putting our faith in something much bigger than, oh, I hope that right now this prayer just works. Right? I'm putting my faith in one of the most supernatural events that's ever going to happen, and that's my body will raise up out of the ground. Now, the Greeks scoffed at this idea. Even Greek believers, you find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and they would say, how can a dead body raise out of the ground? And the, the common question, what if it's pulverized? What if it's burned? What if there's nothing left of the body? And Paul says, you fool. Don't you know your body is like a seed? It gets planted into the ground, but it will be raised up and glorified like Jesus' body on that day. See, if you think that your final destination is to enter through the pearly gates and just float on a cloud as a disembodied spirit, you will not put your hope in, in what the Bible describes as the gospel, right? You have your hope. You won't even think about eternity. All of your hope will be wrapped up in this life. Let's go to slide number 12. I'm not going to read any of these. In the notes, I have all of the things that I use to study, the articles and everything. Um, so if you get the notes this week, you'll be able to click on all the different things that I uh, read through to kind of pull this together. The two big ones that I would recommend are there's two videos by uh, a Bible teacher named David Pawson. Uh, and he has two 45-minute uh, uh, teachings that uh, um, they're called Degreasing the Church. Um, it's not a name that I prefer, but he talks about all the ways that the, and he goes into far more detail than I do, um, 
but he talks about all the ways that, the, that Greek thinking and philosophy has infiltrated the church and it stains the way that we think so that we don't have confidence in the gospel. So I really highly recommend uh, listening to those. But Ephesians 1, uh, verses 9 through 10, here it is. Okay, just get, the, get this in you. This, this has to be foundational and, and core to your beliefs. He had made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ. Everything together. Nothing is despised. Both things in heaven and things on earth in him. All right, I'm going to skip to uh, slide 14. Because then the question becomes, and this is where it gets fun. Like, it's super fun. When you, honestly, like, if you feel disconnected from the Holy Spirit, if you're struggling to, to, to feel like you, it's hard to have conversations with him, meditate on this. This is one of his absolute favorite topics. He loves to talk to human beings about the topic of the resurrection of the dead. This is why it's so important, even as part of our gospel message and the way that we promote and, and, and present the gospel to unbelievers. Because it sounds so childlike to believe it, that this body will be raised up from the grave. Right? It's almost too simpleton. But the Holy Spirit says, I ride on simpleton. I ride on that type of thinking. And when you release that message through your mouth, it pierces the hearts of people. Because now suddenly, the message has meaning. And heaven and eternity aren't some ethereal spiritual ideas that don't really mean anything, right? So let's go to slide 14. Because the question becomes, what would our resurrected body be like, right? That's what the Greeks asked. This is the question that's being asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul outlines with great clarity what a resurrected body would be like, right? Are you, are you feeling kind of the separation? Has anybody ever, have you ever really, it took me 15 years to think through, oh, I am actually going to come back to this body. I'm coming back to it. 15 years of being a believer. For some reason, I always went back to like, I'm going to go to heaven and just be in heaven forever. Heaven is coming to earth. That prayer is not a poem. It's for real. It's coming to earth. And you are going to reign with him on earth. Think about how much more robust that makes the gospel than just escaping, right? The body is detestable. The earth is detestable. We need to escape it and go to the superior spiritual existence. That is so not interesting. So our body, slide 14, it will be like Jesus' body. He will transform, uh, Philippians 3, 21, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to sub subject everything to himself. It will be a physical body, slide 15. As they were saying these things, this is right after Jesus is resurrected and he appears to the, to the disciples. He says, as they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace to you. <clears throat> but they were startled and terrified, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. He says, why are you troubled? He asked them. And why, why do doubts arise in your heart? Look at my hands and look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see me, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. 
Here's a challenging question. Think about this this week. Just meditate on it. Is Jesus a human being right now? If Jesus is a human being right now, then he is a physical being sitting on a physical throne. And when we stood here and worshipped him this morning and bowed our hearts and bowed our knees, a physical man received that worship. It changes everything. It changes the way we think about everything. If we think of Jesus as he went up on the cloud and then like demystified into like some spiritual being that's compatible with spiritual heaven, right? He's a physical man. Slide 16. Our resurrected bodies will be incorruptible. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Slide 17. It's glorious and powerful. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Slide 18, it's a spiritual body. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So just imagine yourself, you're, you know, you're standing here, you're worshiping, and you get like, out of the 45 minutes that you worshiped this morning, there was like that 15 seconds where you felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's never like 45 minutes of, Right? It's always more like 15 seconds and then like, Lord, that person over there is loud. That person touched me with a flag. How do I, you know, you're trying to navigate it all. But imagine just being like walking around with your spiritual body. It's a spiritual and physical body. Don't get it confused. It's spiritual and it's physical. But it's the reconciliation of both. And you're walking around and you have that feeling of the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. It never goes away. Slide 19, it's an immortal body. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Now here's a fun one. Jesus walked through locked doors with his resurrected body. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. (laughs) It's like... It's like, how do you, you know, you ever walk up to somebody and they don't know you're in the room and you're like, hey, and they're like, ah! You're going to get to be able to do that for all eternity. Here's an awesome one. You'll get to eat and drink. We, everything that was meant to be enjoyed in the original creation is not going away, right? See how the hope comes in and it becomes something that's way more fun to think about, but it actually strengthens our faith right? Because now I can endure to the end because I know what the end looks like, in part. I'll read these two verses. I'm sorry, I'm going a little bit late. I'll wrap this up. Job, Job 19, 25. This revelation had hit Job. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and, that he sh- and then at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself, my eyes will look upon him, and not as a stranger. Romans 8, 23 For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is actually what you groan for. This is actually what unbelievers groan for. 
We want the reconciliation of what was broken uh, in the Garden of Eden to be brought back together. And if you take your Bible and you read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and uh, the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, you get a mini book, and you see what was once created and God said is good, was broken by sin, and is amended at the end of the book of Revelation. You get a mini book, and you'll see it go from brokenness back to God's original order. All right, so here, we're going to end right here on 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm just going to give you the speed bumps version because of time. Paul makes, wants to make it really clear, and that's how he opens up. He says, now I want to make it clear to you, brothers and sis- sisters, this is the gospel that I preach to you, okay? Now, it's, it's hard because when you read some of the other epistles, he always says, the gospel I preached, the gospel I preached. But then within the epistle, you never see the gospel he preached. So there was a time when he was present with that church and he preached the gospel. But 1 Corinthians 15 gives us the gospel according to Paul. It says, now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, Jesus was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. Verse 6, and this is, this is actually a more important point than you would think it would be. But over five, there's over 500 historical witnesses to Jesus being raised from the dead. Okay? Not at the event, but they saw him after he was raised. This is why historical scholarship, unbelieving scholarship, cannot dismiss the resurrection of Jesus. That's actually uh, an ace in your pocket as a believer. They know to not argue with you about that about the resurrection of Jesus. Because it's, this actually validates it as a historical fact that there's that many witnesses. It can't be invalidated. Verse, verses 12 through 19, Paul argues that the gospel, gospel message crumbles without the resurrection of the dead. The whole thing falls apart. If you, if you get rid of that component of the gospel message, then it's as though Jesus was never raised himself. Verse 20, Christ's death and resurrection is the first fruits of those who, fall, who have fallen asleep. So Jesus first, then us. Jesus is the only thing in all of created right no, in order right now that has been reconciled back to the, to the way that it should be. The earth has not been reconciled yet. We have not been reconciled yet. And we will not be reconciled, make sure you get this right, until we die. We have to die to be reconciled into that redemption. A lot of people want to put the benefits that come after the resurrection into this life, and you can't do that. You will, have, you will end up in theological confusion. Your expectations will be way off. You'll be wondering why things aren't working out the way that you expect them to work out. Don't put resurrection benefits into this life. Paul tells us at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says that your incorruptible body cannot receive, or your, your corruptible body cannot receive the incorruptible kingdom. It cannot happen. You have to die first. But we know that right now we have it in part. All right. Verse 22, all must die like Adam so that all could be made alive in Christ. Verse 23, at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. Verse 25, Jesus reigns on the earth until all his enemies are under his feet. The final enemy is death. Death has not ultimately been defeated yet. Jesus defeated death in his own life, but your death has not been defeated. If it has, then what happens when people die? It's not an allegory. It's not symbolism. Death is defeated when your body is raised. 
Then the end comes, verse 24, and Jesus hands the kingdom to the Father. And this is the pinnacle point of the gospel. The earth is going to be renewed. Your body is going to be renewed. And Jesus is going to escort the Father to the earth. And we are going to reign with him forever. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand up. So, Father, we just thank you for who you are and your master plan, and we ask that you set it in our hearts. If there's anybody in here that you're not sure that you've given your life to Jesus and you want to have a resurrected body, if you want to live in the benefits of the gospel, because I didn't get to the bad news of not receiving Jesus, but unbelievers also get a resurrected body. And the bad news of unbelievers getting a resurrected body is that body is actually cast into hell. The Bible, the Bible talks about the first resurrection, that's believers. But it refers to the second resurrection as the second death. And if you feel like that you've, you've not ever received or given your life to Jesus and sought to obey him with your life in thought, word, and deed, I want to just invite you to come up. We'll have elders up here or, or a prayer team up here to pray with you. And if you're not comfortable doing that, I don't like to make it all about like have to come to the altar. Find a leader and say, you know what, I, I'm scared. I want to give my life to Jesus, but I don't want to do it in front of everybody. That's totally fine. Uh, Father, we just ask you, Lord, strengthen our faith and encourage us. Help us, Jesus. Set this in our hearts in a way that gives us the endurance that we need to walk out this life the way that you meant for us to walk it out. We ask that you seal this, Lord. We ask that you quicken it to us, and you, we ask, Lord, help us to not forget it, but to go deeper and meditate on these words. We ask this in your name. Amen. Phil, is there anything you want to add?